baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We need, and we haven't done this yet, to centralize our public health system. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. We have done exactly what needed to be done, which is provide and give an effective vaccine. The key for gun safety reform advocates is to think about this in the long term. These times when change happen, often brief, so you want to get as much accomplished as possible. This is KCBS In-Depth. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the program, we're going to present part two in our two-part series, examining mental health challenges in the Bay Area, part of the national I'm Listening campaign dedicated to raising awareness about suicide prevention and ending stigma through conversation. Last week, we brought you stories of mental health struggle and resilience from here in the Bay Area. Today, we're going to be taking a slightly different approach, going beyond the stories of these mental health experts and advocates. We'll now be asking for their advice. Advice on a whole range of things, from how to best offer support to those in crisis. We ask people what right now, in this moment, what is hitting you the hardest right now? To how to do the hard work of supporting ourselves. I think having a good repertoire of healthy behaviors that can help you deal with stress is really important. First up, though, we'll start with a question that's weighing on the minds of many right now. You know, here we are in October 2021, and it's fair to say that by now, many of us assumed the the worst of this pandemic would have already been long gone. Certainly hoped the economy would be on stronger footing by now, but on both counts, serious challenges still remain. So here's the question. In this period of prolonged uncertainty, how can we continue coping with adversity when we've already been coping for so long? For some perspective, I spoke earlier with Narja Sahuri Dillon. She's the executive director of Crisis Support Services of Alameda County, which offers a range of mental health support, including a 24-hour crisis hotline. Hoping to get a fuller picture of how the Bay Area is doing right now, started out our conversation asking how these challenges are showing up in the calls that her crisis center is receiving. Here's what she said. I think some of the things we're noticing include a sense of exhaustion with the pandemic. One of the things that I always think about when I think about people who might be experiencing a mental health crisis is the sense of unknown can become so overwhelming. And the pandemic has had so many unknowns from how we're supposed to handle our everyday business to um, when things could feel safe again and not knowing what's on the other side and how long it will take to get there is something that can really exacerbate people's existing anxieties. And and so you are actually seeing an increase in high severity calls this year? 
Yes. So one of the things that's been very notable is in the last two years, from 2019 to 2020, as well as from 2020 to 2021, each year we experienced about a 50% increase in the severe, in the number of calls that we have who have high risk for suicide. We think about our callers in um, coming in a range. So a lot of the people who call us are really having a bad day, going through some stressors, but there's a subset of people who call us who are thinking about dying by suicide and taking their own lives. And the number of those folks has increased um, year by year and the last two years. And we think of that mostly being due to the fact that the number of stressors that the community as a whole is experiencing has increased. And as the crisis with the pandemic has has moved from month to month, um, people's sense of I'll get through this is wearing off. When a crisis first occurs, people have a sense of we'll get through this. And this is what you see when a natural disaster example occurs. People really come together and help each other through that. The issue with the pandemic and the biggest difference between this kind of ongoing crisis with an acute crisis like a natural disaster is the fact that it hasn't ended yet. And we actually forget about that sometimes. The fact that we're not on the other side is really impacting our ability to cope with this on daily basis. Our bodies and our brains are really more used to a crisis being very short term and for us to deal with the aftermath. In this case, we're in a prolonged crisis. So um, a lot of our systems are becoming overloaded um, over time. Now, these numbers, uh, to be honest, I, I think might be a little bit surprising to anybody who back a year ago, back a year and a half ago, when we're looking to the future of the pandemic, I think a lot of us had the sense that 2020 was pretty bad, but we'd get through it and it would all be over. But as you're saying, there is just this immense sense of strain after all this time. And it's just going on so much longer than so many of us really expected. I guess maybe what's left to talk about right now, then, is what we can do to support one another through all this. Uh, obviously, folks at a call center are experts in how to offer that kind of support. What advice would you give to the rest of us? I will say it is precisely that expectation that's causing more distress right now. It's mm. the difference between our expectation and the reality. That's where most of our stress lives. And because we were all expecting 2021 to be better, and it ended up not being better, we had almost like managed our energy or our gas tank in a way that we all mm. ran out at the same time. Um, so yeah. I will say that, um, and I bring this up because that expectation management and being realistic about our expectations is one of the ways in which we can support each other in getting through however long the remainder of the pandemic is. So when I talk to family members, when I talk to individuals um, who are having a challenging time, one of the things I'm checking in with them about is what were you hoping would be happening right now? And really kind of giving them some space to almost grieve um, the loss of the expectations that we have, even for our daily lives. We can grieve the fact that a workout class is not available to us yet. We can grieve going to the library regularly um, on top of all the grieving that communities, of course, are doing. Um, so I really want people to be kind to each other when it comes to checking in about expectations um, and really acknowledging those small losses in addition to the much, much larger losses communities have had. And that was Nargis Dillon, the executive director of Crisis Support Services of Alameda County. 
To find the kind of support she was talking about, you can call 1-800-273-8255. Again, that's 1-800-273-TALK. Make that call from anywhere in the country, and you'll be connected to a local crisis call center. This is KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Menconi. Today, we're getting advice from the experts about how to confront mental health challenges. Up next, we're going to expand on some of the themes we were just discussing a moment ago. Themes of resilience, of opening up about struggles. And we're going to do so by revisiting one of the stories that we discussed last week. I was really getting... Um, to a point where I couldn't sleep at night. I was waking up with night terrors. You might recall last week, we heard from John Courtney. He's a witness to the May 26th VTA mass shooting, and we spoke with him about the deep trauma that the incident has left behind. I would constantly, you know, ruminate on, on, on the day and try to make sense of a completely senseless act. With so many victims from the attack, it's a trauma that many others have had to face as well. But as we also heard, a small army of counselors and case managers have been working overtime in the months following the tragedy to offer support. Members have my cell phone. I've been able to respond immediately to members who are in crisis. Among those who have stepped up, Sue Cronin, who leads a team that's been providing support since the morning of the attack. But one thing we didn't discuss much last week, what does that support actually look like? understand a little bit what that response means. What are you trying to provide for victims, families, and others that have been affected on that day? So immediately after an incident like that, we are just there to provide comfort, to bring in water, to help people uh, stabilize in a very unstable environment, um, and to just stand beside them as they wait for the news and reunite with their family and coworkers. You know, in listening to Cronin talk about her work, it's really quite striking how so much of what she's talking about, offering a cup of water, uh, listening thoughtfully, it's the sort of thing that we could all do for one another when confronted with those moments of crisis. Uh, But of course, you know, doing so can be really tough. It can be scary to stand in the face of that kind of hurt and pain. Uh, We might worry that we'll say the wrong thing. We might worry how we'll feel when we walk away from that. So I wanted to hear from Cronin, as someone who has stood in that position so many times with so many different people over the course of her career, how could us average people do a better job of offering support to one another during those moments of deep grief and deep challenge? She has some thoughts. Here's what she told me. What would you hope more people understood about this process, how to get through it, and also how to support others who might be facing something similar? Sure. Yeah, grief is universal, but also individual. And uh, we tend to judge one another and judge ourselves. Why am I feeling this way? Why am I not feeling better? Or why is she feeling this way? She wasn't that close to the person who passed. You know, people tend to have these judgments, but we never know what's in someone's invisible backpack. You know, we say we have this invisible backpack where we carry past losses, traumas, current stresses, and you don't see that. You know, you can't see into someone's backpack what they're carrying. So that's why reactions may be more than you would expect or less than you would expect. And what I'd like people to do is just accept how they're feeling or how their friends or family are feeling without that judgment. You know, just be really kind and gentle with oneself through the process. And that gives you more capacity to be kind and gentle with other people and just stand beside them through their grief and whatever they're going through. Yeah taking those feelings as they come. Exactly. 
Uh, and obviously, uh, there will come moments where those feelings will feel overwhelming, and it can be hard to imagine continuing in the face of that. What do you say to somebody who's in that moment? How do you stand beside them and offer them reassurance and support? One of the most important things is to get them grounded in the present moment, because when traumatic grief happens, it's so overwhelming, and there are so many factors that go along with it that we ask people, what right now, you know, at whatever time in this moment, what is hitting you the hardest right now? You know, out of the 62 things swirling around in your head, what feels most difficult right now? And then we help them identify what do they feel like they need to move through that one thing. Hmm. And just really step by step, you can do that multiple times a day. And again, this is not clinical therapy. This is immediate response, critical incident stress management. And then we refer individuals in for ongoing grief support. Yeah. And, and so what would be an example of some of the things that people can focus on to help get through that moment? Sure. So when people are um, trying to figure out what they need to get through that one thing or that one hour, it can vary. Sometimes it's family or friends. You know, having support by you is so important. Um, family or friends, a task, exercise, music, you know, taking short breaks from grief can be really helpful as well. Mm. Um, and just allowing them to be where they are without trying to fix it. You know, sometimes we go into fix it mode. We want to take the pain away. But in traumatic loss, you can't take the pain away. You can just walk with them until that pain reduces over time. And I, I suppose in closing, just to... Uh... Uh, convey to folks their role in all this, you know, how big of a difference do you think it could make if people were more aware of these sorts of uh, principles and these sorts of values and, and uh, were able to provide more attention and uh, a, a better ear listening to other people uh, in, in their sorrows? Uh, how, how big of a difference could that make? Uh, I think it can make a huge difference because after, especially traumatic grief, but any grief, People just need to be heard. You know, you can't fix it. You just need to stand by someone. And I've worked with individuals, especially after homicide or suicide. Other people don't know what to say or do, so they don't do anything. So I was working with a client recently who had a family member die by suicide, and she explained how she was taking a walk in her neighborhood, and a neighbor saw her and crossed the street and turned the corner, mm. you know, and that really stung because she's like, I know she just doesn't know what to say to me, but that hurt. Yeah. You know, and and people are afraid because they don't want to say the wrong thing. Yeah. And I would say, just say, I don't know what to say. That's yeah. okay. You can say, I don't even know what to say, but yeah. I'm here beside you. Yeah. We're yeah. here supporting you. Sometimes that simple, honest presence is what's needed. Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes I say the key to life would be to have the crisis perspective without the actual crisis, you know, looking at what's really important. And when you can... When someone shares what's in their heart with you and shares uh, their deepest thoughts and fears, you know, that's a really precious thing that I feel honored to to witness. And I just wish other people could have that insight into others on a regular basis because we let all of this other stuff cloud our vision and build barriers between us when really at the end of the day, it's just important to take care of yourself and each other. All right, well, Sue Cronin, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Sue Cronin, Director of Critical Incident Stress Management Training and Education at the Bill Wilson Center. And just one final note, some crises really do require an emergency response. If someone is taking action towards harming themselves or others, 
that's the time to call 911. Another place to find support, though, as we mentioned before, is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That can be reached once again at 1-800-273-8255. Again, that's 1-800-273-8255. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Menconi. Today we're discussing crisis and resilience with Bay Area mental health experts. This program, part of the National I'm Listening campaign, working to end stigma through conversation. For our final conversation today, we're going to be taking a step back from those big, heavy topics that we've been looking at so far, grief, trauma, loss, and instead shifting the focus to discuss what actually makes us happy. Because, of course, part of maintaining good mental health is finding the time to do the things we love. It's how we blow off steam after a hard day's work. It's how we cool down after a heated conversation. In other words, it's how we manage our stress and anxiety. And as we'll hear in just a second, when the stress of life gets out of control, it can cause some serious problems. And, you know, we've all probably got our little de-stressing routines that we've worked out over the years, but I figured given all these new challenges that are being thrown our way in 2021, it might be time to give those routines a little tune-up. Is there a way to get more out of our downtime? To find some answers, I decided to consult the local authority on all things relaxing. Hey, how's it going, man? Good. How you doing? Doing well. How are you? Good. That's Dr. Jonathan Horowitz. He's a clinical psychologist and the director of the San Francisco Stress and Anxiety Center. So I figured if anyone would have a good de-stressing routine, it would be him. And I asked him if I could tag along with that de-stressing routine. And he said yes. Actually, it turned out to be a good day to do this because uh, before we met up, he had a pretty stressful morning. He says he ended up going on the wrong bike trail, and that put him about 45 minutes behind schedule. I was, like, all late for everything. Oh, man, what a day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the fun didn't stop. Just as we were setting up, he made an accidental pocket dial. (laughs) Did I pocket video call you? How does that even happen? So right off the bat in this conversation, we already had some stress to work with. Well, now that you're nice and flustered. (laughs) He recovered quickly, and we started our conversation covering the stress and anxiety fundamentals. All right, so uh, brought you out here to talk about the best practices of dealing with stress and anxiety. And uh, here we are on the waterside edge of Lake Merritt, a nice relaxing spot to have this conversation. So uh, my day's already going well. Glad you're uh, out here. Thanks for being here, by the way. Of course, of course. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So I guess to start out the conversation, want to make sure that our listeners can connect those dots between stress and anxiety and uh, bigger mental health challenges that some people may be facing. We've been talking about a lot of really serious uh, issues on the show so far today. But uh, I think it's fair to say that sometimes really just a little day-to-day self-care, self-maintenance kind of stuff can make a big difference. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, when When we're talking about stress management, a lot of it is fairly simple and straightforward. And the most important thing, I think, is selecting habits that are really enjoyable and helpful to you in particular. And then doing those things on a regular basis, really making them part of your routine. So it doesn't have to be anything really exotic or special or expensive or extraordinary uh, for it to be helpful. To explain the connection between de-stressing and overall mental health a bit further, he drew a parallel with exercise and the role that plays in staving off serious physical health challenges. 
you know, there are some, some people are suffering from really serious medical illnesses and they need to see a professional and they need serious treatment and care for those, right? But everybody, even if they're not suffering from those, we all have to take care of ourselves, take care of our bodies, right? And we need to figure out how to do that. How do we eat right, sleep enough, exercise, those kinds of things. Similar thing for mental health, right? You need to figure out like what are the behaviors that you can engage in that are gonna make you feel good and be okay, right? And better deal with your stress. And of course, when our stress hits a critical level, we start making worse decisions. Eating more, drinking more, sleeping less. And that all contributes to overall mental health struggles. Jonathan's work as the director of a stress and anxiety center is helping people understand how to respond. So there are a lot of these behaviors that happen when you hit that stress red line. So I think a lot of the practices that we do and that we try to train clients in are to help people recognize where their stress level is, recognize where their emotional health is, and when they're getting close to that red line, have some strategies for safely and in a healthy way bringing down their stress level. And sometimes I'll hear people kind of uh, say like, act like, well, it's this sort of optional thing, you know, take, taking care of your emotional health. It, that's nice if you can do it. That's nice if you have time for it. I'm just trying to get through my day. I'm just trying to like, you know, and I understand that perspective totally, but at the same time, it helps you get through your day a lot more effectively if you're able to do that. So I think having a good repertoire of healthy behaviors that can help you deal with stress is really important because we are always limited by what we need to do in our day and where we are and things like that. So I think having a really good flexible range of things to do is great. All right, so with all that preamble out of the way now, it's time to start what we came here for. That would be Dr. Jonathan Horowitz, stress expert's de-stressing routine, which, as it happens, often includes a jog around Lake Mary. And my shoe is immediately untied. <laughs> Once we caught our stride, I asked him to discuss why exercise is an important part of managing stress. So I, I think the most important thing to remember here is that stress is actually a physiological phenomenon and we're, we have a stress response. We've adapted a stress response evolutionarily so that we can deal with obstacles in our environment, so we can deal with threats in our environment. We have that for a reason. It becomes problematic when we get stuck in that place and we can't get out of that chronic stress response and exercise is something that helps, helps reduce it, restore us to baseline. So, once we were nice and restored back to baseline, we headed off on the next leg of our de-stress journey. For Jonathan, that would be meditation. And that is the sound of his meditation pillow. One of the things that I recommend to pretty much every client is to have some kind of form of a meditation practice or something like that. There are a lot to choose from. You know, there's yoga, there's qigong, there's other things that are like that. For his own practice, he just tries to make sure he's on that cushion for 10 minutes a day. It's not like some Herculean effort. It's not a huge thing, but it just like helps. And I feel better when I do it, like noticeably, like consistently feel better doing that. All right. So meditation, not a lot going on from the outside. So how exactly is the de-stressing happening? Meditation is just a very basic tool that is available to everybody. Uh, that can help you better understand your own mind, help you understand your own emotions, and help you recognize when, when your stress level is too high and when you need to regulate it and bring it down, right? That's one of the most powerful skills that you learn in meditation is just being able to go, okay, right now I'm kind of upset, I'm kind of amped up, and I need to just 
breathe and take it down a notch. And when you first start to do it, you realize that that's really difficult. Like it's not as easy as it sounds to just notice that you're operating, uh, at a level that's not helpful and just bringing it down. But meditation really helps you build that skill. And it is a skill of noticing your emotions and then being able to regulate them in a healthy way. Okay, so we are back to baseline. Our emotions are regulated. But there is one final step on Jonathan's de-stressing journey, and that is playing music. Do you, do you write music or are you just like jamming out? I'm starting to write music. Nice. I never did. I... Jonathan, as it happens, is quite the guitarist. And his guitar picking passion also plays a role in his mental health regimen. Like, does wailing on it, is that yeah. what you go for? Or is it uh, more like something, something mellow? All depends, man. Yeah. All depends how, yeah. <laughs> where I'm at, you know. Yeah. What's really important yeah. about this pastime, he says, is that it's all consuming. There's something really powerful about being absorbed in the moment by whatever you're doing, being pulled into an activity. And that really matters because sometimes even when we're done with our work and whatever our responsibilities might be, it can still be hard to put that stress and anxiety back down. So he says, It's really important to have uh, a distraction, and I say distraction in the best possible way, right? Like when you have things that are really engaging to you, that pull you into the moment, that don't allow the space for attention for those other things, um, that has a really powerful stress relieving impact on you, right? So for me, it's music. I really enjoy music because you can't really play music and be distracted by other things, especially if you're playing with other people. It's like dancing or something where you have to be very coordinated and you have to be very present. And I've, I just noticed over the years from doing it, then when I'm doing it, I just tend to feel happier. You know, I just step away from it and I feel less stressed out regardless of what was happening for me that day. microphone in your face still. Feel less stressed out. This helps. <laughs> so it sounds like there's a, a lot of different values that these activities reflect. There's reflecting on where you are. There's that headspace. There's the physicality uh, kind of blowing off that extra energy, blowing off that steam with the exercise. There's the creative uh, expression. What other things should people keep in mind when they're selecting what activity they should do personally? I think you should pay attention to how you feel when you do it. You know, what is the impact of it, right? And how do you feel immediately after you do it? And that's really going to tell you a lot. Um, do you look forward to it? Do you enjoy doing it? Does it feel like, does it just feel like something you're doing because you should be doing it? Because someone told you at some point it's a good thing for you to do, right? Usually when we try to do those things, we wind up like rebelling against ourselves at some point, you know, oh, it feels really good to not do the running that I said I was going to do, right? Like, don't pick up or try to stick with anything that you feel like isn't actually rewarding for you. So it's about like slowing down, tuning in, noticing your experience. And if it's something that's good for you psychologically, it's going to start to draw you in. You're going to start to look forward to it. Anything else come to mind that uh, we haven't asked about yet? I think that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Jonathan Horowitz, thank you very much. I hope that uh, you feel less stressed than when we started. I do. I do. It's been a good. It's been <laughs> a good. It's over. <laughs>
And that was Dr. Jonathan Horowitz, a clinical psychologist and the director of the San Francisco Stress and Anxiety Center. That's it for In-Depth and our special two-week series examining mental health challenges in the Bay Area, part of the national I'm Listening campaign. Additional resources can be found at imlistening.org. Thank you for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.